it's the fund of what we have in our minds. It's how we think. It's the tools that we think with. If they're a dictionary of diluted words that you're using to think, it's negative. You can lose ground. You cannot pick things up as quickly as you might. You can lose confidence. That's one of the things that happens. Whereas if you have in your mind impactful words, you start to populate your thinking with words that are forceful, strong, impact you, get you to think things that are of value. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence podcast. This show is for current and aspiring leaders that are dedicated to showing up every day in their lives with excellence. We break down the careers of those excelling so you can understand what is out there and how to rise up in every field you choose. Let's get the show on the road, shall we? Your host has spent his life promoting global entrepreneurship, helping 20-somethings find their passion and working to help others achieve excellence. CEO of CollegeWorks, Matt Stewart. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for listening and subscribing. We've got a great show today, a little different than normal. This show is a show to educate you on impactful language, winning language, and how language impacts your thought. We have Dr. Robert Fisher on the show today, who went from architecture to surgery to psychiatry to business to consulting. He works with strategic execution as a consultant, and he's written a book on winning language. And we're going to get deep into winning language and deep into life's clues, people, circumstance, experience. Welcome to the show and welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Well, Dr. Fisher, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Matt, I turn it the other way around. I I thank you. What a wonderful opportunity to reach out to what I understand is an audience that's growing and seeking some of the things, a path that I've I've already gone down. And uh, it's a a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I think some of them, some of them are seeking a path similar to some of the paths you've gone down. I think there's a lot of people that are listening today that don't know exactly what they want to do for a living, feel like they have to figure out the rest of their life. And I think your story of bouncing from law to architecture, to surgery, to psychiatry, to business, to this new passion project, focusing on winning language and impactful speech is a very interesting path that many people are on and they don't know they're on it yet. And maybe you'll give some people some comfort and some patience in their life pursuit. I certainly hope so. And also to acknowledge that the path is at times not comfortable and we have to go through it anyway. And that's what makes this particular uh, interview rich. Well, thank you very much. And I think so. Uh, Adversity creates strength. Oftentimes it may not feel that way at the time, but adversity can create strength and learning how to face difficulties and get through them creates confidence. And if you have enough of those experiences, you may end up wise one day in the distant future. So we're going to start off the way we always start off 
Dr. Fisher, what is your definition of excellence? I've been looking at that and looking at that since you sent it over to me a week or two ago. Excellence is the thing that we aim for, the thing that we do the best, that we work as hard as we can to achieve and be aware that sometimes we fall short. And that that means that it's time to continue or stop and go again. So we aim for excellence. We do our best when we're in the pursuit of excellence. There's got to be the hard work element in your definition. And then oftentimes we may fall short, find that we don't get there. And we pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and either keep going in the same direction, aiming at that excellence or maybe find a new direction because we learned that maybe what we're trying doesn't align with our competencies. Would you say that is a good addition? I agree. And there's there's an additional piece, which is that that will thread throughout our conversation, which is we don't always do it alone. Well, that's interesting. I tell my wife, you know, we're we're uh, we're possibly going to move to a different state. You know, we talk about what if this happens? What if that happens? And for some reason, my wife was starting to think maybe this means that we're going to go in separate directions. The kids are leaving. I said, hey, if anything ever happens, I just want you to know you are responsible for at least half of everything good that's ever happened here. Without you supporting me, I would have never been able to do anything I do. And I think for a little brief period of time, she wondered if I really felt that way. So I know as a person that's been married for 25 years, couldn't have done it without her. I've got three business partners. And oftentimes one of the three other business partners are putting the three of us, including myself on their back and carrying us. I could have never done it without my partners without the team. So who are some of the people that you couldn't have done it without in your life? Well, I start off very early with my with my family, both immediate, my mother and father and my extended family. My mother, as we get later into our conversation, uh, was an extremely articulate and well-read person and uh, also took me, I, I grew up on the East Coast, and uh, took me to very important places in the capital and downtown New York and saw and listened to some fine people and a guy named Van Cliburn, who uh, it's quite a while ago, but won the Rachmaninoff concert and in uh, in Russia, one of the I think the only American that ever has and took me to Central Park to see it. And I had wonderful relatives wonderful relatives and i had also had wonderful friends and and those are the those are my resources they really are so you're one of the lucky ones that has this supportive family and not everybody has a supportive family and if you don't there are other people you can look to for mentorship you also had relatives you also had friends and you started your life in, in your your professional life in a different fashion than most. A lot of people, they are in high school, they go to college, they think they know what they're going to do and they find out that's not what they're going to do and they go on a long, different path or they know what they want to do and they go on a long, singular path. A lot of times people have no idea, which is why we have this show. You came into college knowing what you wanted to do for a living and I believe you wanted to be a lawyer and then something happened and you changed to wanting to be an architect. So what was life like for you in high school and college 
And how are you sorting out what you wanted to do for a living? I was fortunate to be in a public high school in Yonkers, New York, that turned out a lot of people that went to college. And I was I was fortunate enough to uh, be drawn to and have friends who happened to be very astute and smart. And those friendships and sports and reading and the courses I took, they all came that quite naturally, except for math, uh, except for advanced calculus. That one really threw me until college. I had to take it again for architecture, where I passed it, and that changed my life. But I was thinking about it as I was as I was reading over some of our our thoughts beforehand, Matt. And so much of my life has to do with with like minded people and people who are generous and willing to step in and give good advice. So being coached, not recognizing it, but being coached at an early age by by friends was uh, a critical piece of of what happened and it extended into college as well. So you found your tribe in high school and you found a group of people that were helping to lift you, helping you make your decisions, as opposed to those people that drag you down. And I'm sure there were some of those around that you chose not to spend your time with. And then you did you start off in San Luis Obispo? Is that where you went to undergrad? No, uh, I started off at Berkeley. Berkeley, then San Luis Obispo. And I want to mention one quick thing. When I was 16, I flew out to see my uncle who had moved out here. He took me to Berkeley and it was over. That was it. I went home and two years later I applied and in three weeks by mail, um, I was accepted and it all be, it all extended um, after a trip with some wonderful high school friends to, to Europe for the summer. Berkeley just took off and ran. And the second day I was there, I met a lifelong friend who became uh, president of the class and a mentor and colleague and some other folks as well. That's that's similar to my story, except it was UC Santa Barbara. My parents, we were going to San Luis Obispo, actually, from L.A., drove through Santa Barbara, decided I need to go to school here when I was a freshman. My parents didn't want me to go to school there, so I went anyway. And then I met my lifelong friend, Gunner. The second day I was in college as well, and his wife was just here. His wife's my uh, decorator and contractor doing my remodeling. And it's interesting, you and I found these supportive and uplifting people. And if you're listening right now, two things. One, if you're in your car listening to this at 1.5 speed and you're driving to some appointment, look at who your friend group is. Look at who your tribe is. Are you spending time with the people that are lifting you up? And maybe for Dr. Fisher and I, it wasn't conscious at the time, but it has become conscious. We now choose to spend our time with the people that are lifting us up because of our experience. Second, if you're a parent listening right now, it pays to take your kids to campuses when you're visiting different towns. So had my parents not swung by Santa Barbara, had Dr. Fisher's parents not sent them out to Berkeley, maybe the whole world would be different for us. It pays to show your kids what the campuses look like and feel like because it's a difficult decision for a 17-year-old to make. But we'll get back to it. So you go to Berkeley. Um, you're studying for pre-law. Am I right? I was taking general general courses and toward the end of, of four years applied to uh, to law school and got in. By the way, since I get to call you Matt, you get to call me Robert if you like. 
Well, I, I would I would prefer to be called Dr. Stewart, but I skipped all that extra schooling. So no one's willing to do it. OK, OK, Robert. Well, thank you, Dr. Stewart. I appreciate it. <laughs> so uh, what's what's fun. So I was studying for for all the coursework I needed. I studied a little bit of architecture because I really love the design component of it. And um, I got into uh, Hastings School of Law, which is University of California in San Francisco. And I wasn't sure. I went, huh. And I had always, I, I actually, when I was a kid, I read about Abe Lincoln, and that's what triggered what it meant to be a lawyer. And I went to a um, very uh, wonderful teacher of mine named Albert Bendick, who's no longer with us, and who was Lenny Bruce's attorney and ACLU. And and he talked to me very briefly and talked me out of it. Just somehow or other had an instinct about it. And I walked across, I knew what I was going to do. I walked across and I questioned whether listening to someone even as astute as Al Bendick was, was wise along my journey. And I I say to our audience who are making such decisions, you know, think on your own too. But he influenced me and I walked over to uh, the graduate school at, uh, at Berkeley in architecture. And I went up to a visiting professor who I'd worked with that Escher, Dr. Escherich had sent me to. And I said, uh, what would I have to do to get into graduate school in uh, architecture at Berkeley? He said, you're accepted. I said, what? And he said, yeah, but there are two things, uh, three things you have to do. He says, basically, you have to ask me. You have to walk over to Dr. Escherich's office and put in an application and uh, and tell him that that's what you want to do. I, he was just delightful. And the next thing I knew, and I wanted, I'll tell you, I'll move this very quickly to the next stage. I wanted to study the impact of space, meaning the, the space around us, on people, because I've always been attracted to that thought. My mother was an interior designer, and that was in our home a lot. And I hear something, uh, Matt. I could not explain to the faculty what I was talking about. Here, here I am talking about language, and I couldn't do it then. I was well-spoken, but no matter what I did, I couldn't do it, and it just stopped working for me. And then I had to take uh, calculus, because you better know how to do engineering if you're going to build a bridge, or it'll fall down. And I passed it, and I went, oh my goodness, I couldn't, pa I didn't pass this in, I thought I couldn't pass it in high school, but here I am in college, just, just passed in graduate school, just passed, I'm going to medical school. It's something that I've always loved, the impact of, of people. So I spent a year and a half, and when my second semester at Berkeley, I waited until the last day for my teacher to sign me up for courses, and they were all pre-med. And, and he looked at me, and he was from England, and he said, Mr. Fisher, I don't know what you're doing, but I wish you the very best of luck. And I spent a year and a half doing pre-med. I worked for a year in interesting things, and then I went to the University of Missouri, and uh, it was a, a thrilling experience becoming a doctor and studying. 
and the people that I met there. And I'll mention something else about words, Matt. I was told, I don't know if it's accurate, that in medical school, you learn 75,000 new words. I'm not surprised, uh, but I have no documentation for it. So there, life has these little clues. So um, your, people need to trust their gut. They need to um, think they need to uh, plot things out on paper and make their decisions and their gut will give them clues. They need to talk to their advisors, talk to their mentors. The mentors will give them clues and ultimately they have to make a decision. You made many decisions. So you had Al Bendick that said, hey, law's not right for you. OK, that resonated. You go and you've got the, the admissions uh, professional at the architecture school that says, hey, go talk to Dr. Esrick. You're in. So that sort of feels right to you. Then you have the medical school experience of, of, of sailing through calculus. And there is a sign. It's time to be a doctor instead of an architect. If I'm this good at calculus, I should go to medical school. And the whole time you're realizing, hey, I couldn't explain the effect of space on people. And this little seed, this little clues being planted in your brain for later on in life when you're going to get into impactful speech and impactful thinking. So you go to medical school and you study psychiatry, correct? Well, it's uh, medical school is four years. And then I had to do an internship. Then one does an internship and then three years to become a psych resident. And then I did a year with the National Science Foundation on the impact of organic brain disease on people. And that's that must be where you met my godfather, the late, great Terry Yates at the National Science Foundation. One step over, I early on, uh, one of my colleagues brought me over to the University of New Mexico to coach some uh, a startup. There it there therein it it lies, and um, I said I'd be delighted to. And the, the the president of the board of science and technology was there. Called me up and said, "I want to hire you." And the next about. Two days later, I get a, chair, a call from the chairman of the board saying, uh, no, you're not doing that. We had some difficulty starting up our uh, board with the university faculty, and that's, that's, that, that's who we're here for. I want you to come on the board, and I want you to make that relationship wonderful. And I've been doing that for a long time. And one, one year, about 10 years in, I met a man named Terry Yates, and what a pleasure that was. And um, Terry became a member of my board when I did Future of Scenario Planning and, and Healthcare. And he came up to me and said, I'll do it, but what I'm gonna tell you, and here comes words, um, is what I'm gonna ask you is what, uh, what is it that the National Science Foundation, uh, I'm not sure that was the organization, um, needs to ask itself to do fine work in, in viral research? And Terry was uh, very well known. That question stuck with you. What does, whether it's the NSF or Berkeley or a student studying debate, law, a business that you're coaching, what does blank need to ask itself to execute blank? And I looked to our mutual friend, uh, Terry, and I, I think he may have been with a different uh, uh, national 
uh, he organization. Was, he was director of the NSF at one point in time. Ah, so yes, that's where I met met Terry, and um, I was uh, out into psychiatry then. But I backtrack for one quick second for this particular audience. In my fourth year of medical school, I had fallen in love with surgery. And I went up to the head of surgery and I said, you know, I want to be in your residency program in two years. And he said, there's no way I'm going to do it. And we had done surgery together. And he says, no way. He says, you've already been pre-accepted in psychiatry out in California. I'm not going to waste our slot on someone who's going to a couple of years later go off and do something else. And here's the, here's the thing, Matt. If I had been absolutely certain, if I had been absolutely intent, and I had been me now, I would have gone back to him in two days, and I'll tell the audience, I would have said, Dr. So-and-so, I want you to think about something. And what that is, is that um, I will let go of my um, future spot in psychiatry um, in exchange for a position in your your surgery program. You don't have to worry about my taking off and doing something else. I just thought about that as I was preparing for us to talk. And that's impactful thinking and speech. At the time, maybe it was one of the signs, maybe it was fate, you shouldn't be in surgery, you should go to psychiatry, you should um, learn about how people think and how they relate, and your calling in life is to work on winning language and impactful speech. So it could have been fate, but it also could have been a different path that you would have been equally prosperous on. And what you're saying is ask for what you want and make sure the person knows you're willing to give up what they think you won't give up for it. Um, that's perfectly put. That's perfectly put. And the next year when I did my internship, I did 11 out of 12 months of surgery. And because I had the chance to. And then I went off into psychiatry and it was very valuable to me. And Matt, uh, it, I'll, I'll mention how I got out of psychiatry after a number of years, which is I had two patients in my practice, both of whom were having difficulty with what? Their businesses. And one of them, their, their business had dropped from eight to $4 million in a year or two. And I learned and thought, what do they need to change it and bring it back up? And it worked. I won't elaborate here, but it worked uh, a strategy for them. And then someone else who was in the practice came in and said, I've got 60 people in my bank division and I need to figure it out. And we did. And after that, I called yet another advisor at uh, Chevron, who in the past had fed patients my way. And uh, I said, John, I don't know what's going on, but I'm doing something really well that I have not been trained to do. I don't understand it. And he said, Robert, come on down to uh, Fisherman's Wharf and speak at one of our presentations. I did. I knew what I wanted to say. And at the end of an hour, someone came up to me, tapped me on the shoulder, and they said, we're from, it was one of the big banks in California. We need your help. And that was the beginning. It took some, a couple of years to transition, but it led very much in our direction, Matt, yours and my discussion. 
Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with this podcast, it's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Matt and the rest of the team put together the Edge of Excellence Bundle. In it, you'll find different tools that relate to overarching themes and topics of the show. Things like disk assessment tools, time management strategies and tactics, stress and anxiety management tools, exclusive videos and episodes from this podcast that is not released anywhere else, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of this show, you can access the Edge of Excellence bundle 100% for free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get access, all you have to do is go to www.collegeworks.com podcast and fill out the short form there for us to get the bundle over to you. Once again, it's www.collegeworks.com podcast. Now, back to the show. So throughout um, growing up and then heading off to Berkeley and then law school, architecture school, medical school, did you know that you needed to stand out? Were you trying to stand out? You don't just get accepted on a word unless you're standing out and they know that you're an, uh, an excellent student. Were you consciously standing out? Or was this just happening and you realize later, hey, I stood out back then? Matt, two things. My family thought unusually high of me. So I had an, an upbringing of that. And for instance, in this, in this example, I didn't think that I was needing to stand out. So there have been plenty of times when I have since then, when I'm going after something in particular, I was genuinely fascinated with what was going on with these two clients. And then when I call someone up, it, a, a number of things have happened to me that I haven't asked for. A number of things have happened that have. So when I called this gentleman who I did business with, clinical business, uh, he recognized what the story was and said, you come talk. And I was very comfortable coming and speaking. And I wasn't the least bit of surprise surprised at surprises. Someone not tapping me on the shoulder saying, we need you to do this. And a lot of my work has been by being open and intentional and working very hard to solve people's problems and business problems and, and how they talk and think. So if we go back to your definition of excellence, it's the thing that we aim for. However, we may not be aiming at the right thing. We do the best we can. However, we might be working on something that isn't the best we can, we, the best we can be at. We work as hard as we can to achieve, fall short, try again, not always the same thing. And uh, you've added an openness to serendipity, to advice, to mentorship. And then you mentioned the word genuine. And I think that might be a lot of it. If you are genuine, if you're acting um, genuinely and pursuing and putting effort in, if you are enjoying it and you keep having these moments of enjoyment and memory back to when you're young with your mother or memory back to another time, then eventually you find your excellence. And a lot of people I interact with and I interact with a lot of people in their 20s, 
they're thinking it should happen right now. And I think there's a lot of societal pressure, figure out what you're going to do, make your mark, get yourself on Instagram. You need to do better every single day than all your friends. At least the photos need to look like you're doing better. And you went through maybe a more patient process um, with this openness and this genuine action to when finally you stumble on your calling, you found your calling, you were fascinated by something and it turns out you were really good at it and kind of invented a new career for yourself. And I don't even know if the, I was going to say industry, but it wouldn't be industry. If the area of study existed, impactful thought and impactful speech that came out of your study to help someone solve their problems or help a group of people solve their problems. Right. That's right. I hope this gives pause to someone listening in their car right now and they're driving around and they're frustrated because they haven't figured their whole life out. I get sad when I hear that. And I, when I work with high school kids to help them get into college and none of them know what they want to do. And I say, it doesn't matter. And none of them know where they want to go to school. And I say, it doesn't matter. It matters that you get a foothold in somewhere. And if it doesn't work off, work out, excuse me, you follow your, your definition here. Try pick yourself up, dust yourself off. Maybe you change schools and start all over again. But you have this history of every couple of years. You weren't quite there. It felt sort of good. Not quite yet. Move to the next one. And you kept feeling it out. What gave you the confidence to leave these wonderful opportunities and go after another one? How did you know that that was a good idea? Matt, it was um, it was fascinating to me. The the things that I went one to another were stimulating they added something i i was i would say i was always looking for an opportunity for something that was wonderful and contributory to other people and ideas and um, building businesses and fixing things both individual and not and I think that I don't. I, I I'll to my own thing about speech. I won't uh, say I think, but that's that's it. And I'm I'm still in that in that place. I'm doing writing. I've written two novels on on medical mysteries. Haven't haven't gotten them published, but uh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And uh, I've had some people in uh, in that industry be very be very generous, but. We have only so much time. So that could be a great indicator. If you're fascinated by something, that might be an indicator that you might be able to excel at it. Fascination might equate to confidence. Uh, If you're stimulated, it might be easier to work really hard and do your best at it because you're fascinated and stimulated by it. And you've been fascinated and stimulated by a lot of things. So you get into this business consulting, you're helping people with uh, their strategy and implementing their strategy and you stumble across impactful thinking and impactful speech. So what, what we should do is get into what is winning language, what is impactful thinking and impactful speech, uh, because there's people listening right now that in addition to hearing your career path and giving themselves confidence and helping them think about their fascinations and their passions, there's some there's some of the work you do can help them get those first jobs and start. So let us know what it is. I will do that right now. I think of language as broken into minimally two parts. One, diluted words. 
and diluted words. And people in the audience will recognize it, and I hear it all the time. Diluted words are, let me, sorry, I just, I think. So let me, or do you want me to start? Or, you know, or got adjust, or maybe, or sort of, uh, or well, or um, I think I'm just. So why don't we? And I will now read what I call a dictionary of impactful words. And I'll read them across from the words I just read. And we'll go from there quickly. Let me is, this is what I will show you. You're not asking permission. Sorry, can be, I appreciate what you've done. I just can be, from my point of view, I think is better spoken as it's clear that. So let me to, this is what I'll do, or this is what we'll do. Or do you want to start? Can be, let's start. And, um, Shall I continue? Um, I'll go a few more so that people may hear their own language. So, you know, is this is what I want you to know. Got to just, and we hear this all the time, is you or we have to. Maybe is it's possible. Sort of is let's be specific. Well, can be let's begin here. And I'll. The list is, goes on, and I'll explain what we do with it. I think is it's clear that where we go from here is you pick out the words that you recognize, and the list is much longer, and I'm writing about it, so it'll be available for people, or, and I teach it. I was going to point that out. You wrote the book on it, yet... Every once in a while, you catch yourself and you backtrack. And that's okay, right? It's okay to not be perfect. The point is, and that's back to your definition of excellence, that you're waking up every day trying to do the best at the thing you're aiming for, working hard. And if you fall short, you pick yourself up and dust yourself off. And that happens to everybody. If you're listening right now, there's a lot of pressure to be perfect, but it's not real. No one is perfect. Even the person that wrote the book on it has to stop and correct himself. So we hear a lot about the power of positive thinking, and you're talking about the power of impactful speech. And I'm sure that people listening in the car are thinking, whoa, diluted words, that makes sense. My words are watered down. Just like that surgeon, I didn't go in and say, this is what I want, and this is what I'm willing to give up for it. Take me seriously. There's diluted words, there's diluted actions, there's diluted confidence. So how does this impactful speech, if, so, if one reads your book and we're going to figure out how to get your book and, and studies this, how does it affect the way they think and their ultimate success later in life? I was thinking about that before we started. It's the fund of what we have in our minds. It's how we think. It's the tools that we think with. If they're a dictionary of diluted words, that you're using to think it's negative it's you can lose ground you cannot pick things up as quickly as you might can lose confidence so that's that's one of the the things that happens whereas if you have in your mind impactful words 
you start to populate your thinking with words that are forceful, strong, impact you, get you to think things that are that are of value. And also, the next step is when you go to speak to someone, thinking about how is it I'm going to present this to somebody and what language will, will I use? And it becomes more automatic over time. It takes months, if not a year, to make the shift of, of, of how to do this. And um, what you land up doing is you mentioned your, your children. You have the team that you need at home to, uh, to do this, where one of them identifies, oh, here are words, or the whole family identifies, oh, that, that's diluted. But let's make 10 words this month that are diluted. And let's make right next to them 10 words that can supplant or replace them that are impactful. And whenever we're at home, when one of us hears one of those diluted words come out, we can do a snap, a touch, and anything, and you go, oh, thank you, and um, and shift it over to the other word. And it's practice, it's repetition, and it's recognition. And so you have a perfect team of doing it. I do it on mock trial for Cal Berkeley. You asked me that earlier when we were talking and how very important it is. They're, they're making arguments in speech in the, in the midst of 666 different schools that are in competition. So it fits them well. And as it does an industry, uh, various in, in industrial companies, uh, that I've had a chance to work with on this, where we go up with a uh, a whiteboard, and uh, we they start talking, and every time they 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 mention any of them, and they're talking about a topic or a theme or something they have to do, every time I hear a diluted word, I put it up, and when I hear it the second time, because they come up frequently, I'll check it off, and they laugh. And a third time, and then we talk about the strategy to move that group over to to a more impactful speech. So imagine what it's like when they speak to clients, when they speak to each other, when they speak to their upward reports to be more forceful and articulate and impactful. So that it affects their thinking ultimately because they're changing the uh, the fund of speech that they've got. They're changing the set of tools. They they have a set of if you can learn seventy five thousand new words in four years of medical school, you can learn through the course of college working it with your fraternity or your sorority or in your friend group or in your own family or in your work group, you can learn to have impactful language. And if you're looking for a job one day, it would help to have impactful language. If you're looking to build a team for a business, it would help if everyone had impactful language. If you're in sales, oh my gosh, in sales, you definitely should have impactful language and those words are your tools. So you can take the non-impactful diluted words out of your mind and replace them 
with better impactful words and you've got tools in your brain that will start to impact you and impact your confidence. And again, it's the thing we're aiming for. We're doing our best. This is doing the best. If you want to go find the dream career, this is one of the hows. And we're talking to Dr. Fisher, who went from architecture to medicine, to surgery, to law, architecture, surgery, psychiatry, and ultimately found his calling in business consulting and strategy consulting, which is a wonderful path that probably more than half the people listening are going to be on. They say you're going to change your career six times in your life. If you're in your twenties, six times, and this impactful speech can help in every career and help you figure out what that career is. Do you have any examples of how the language and the strategy has helped people in the career hunt that you've worked with or changing their role in a, in a business or getting a promotion in a business? I do. I, I, um, I mentioned the, how I suddenly my own clients brought me up to business in, uh, cases that landed me shifting. So that's one. I have a, a, another one. I, I was working with a, with a company and they invited me to their executive board to, to uh, help them do strategy. And I was invited to work with them. And I observed very briefly, very quickly, that they were working on what they did in what we all know as in sequence. They would do this, then they would do that, then they would take on that project. That is, each project had to be completed before they would take on the next. And I thought of the word, um, I thought of a negative word. They were moving too slowly uh, and using consequence. The executive board was moving too, too slowly. And they were working in sequence meaning that they would complete one job, then they would complete another task and another, another, and the company therefore was moving too slow. And in brief, I talked to them about doing projects and the word that came to mind was parallel, um, where they were doing things simultaneously all, all at the same time. And they started moving much more quickly. So that, that was one, one place change their whole mindset. So you've got these little clues that are popping up. Your friends are coming to you saying, hey, you've got something special. Can you bring that? You don't even know what it is yet. When did it start to form in your mind that this was going to be what you do, that you were going to go into this form of consulting, you were going to have your business in this form, as opposed to all other options out there. How did you see that this was the specific thing to aim for that you could work as hard as you could at, you'd find your passion in and be able to get excellent in? Matt, you point out that um, that I've brought this into, actually, I would frame it this way, into everything I do. It is, it's a fascination. I'm writing about it now, so it'll be available at some point to uh, as a guideline but it's something that i think about all the time i hear people all the time i hear mock trial all the time i hear my clients and it's growing if you're listening to this thinking about what your passions might be those passions could be used in a variety of different areas so you've got that 
And it's obvious that it's a passion. You're bringing it into consulting. You're bringing it into teaching. You're bringing it into writing. How could someone in their 20s bring it into their relationships or or their opportunities with people? There, there's all these people around and they're looking to get a job or make friends or whatever it is. How could they bring that impactful language into those scenarios? Well, I started listing things that were impactful speech and it's now recorded if they take the eight or ten pieces of impactful speech and be mindful of what is diluted uh it's a a guideline for them to begin because once you start hearing it uh, you can develop a list of your own you can expand on it and start working with it and if you started with that number of uh, of words that I that I articulated uh, and have it in your pocket and you're thinking about it, another thing happens. Another thing happens, which is you start really thinking about it. And this stuff goes uh, into your thinking and you share it with one or two people that you're close to and it answers your question, Matt. That's how they can bring it in. And it's back to that word genuine. You have to genuinely be curious. So the action is rewind the tape here. Go back, listen to those words. Find your word, kind of, um, is the one I used just now. Write down the alternative and practice. Every day you practice. And Dr. Fisher says, you know, may take months, may take a year. Oh, no, months or a year. Uh, You're going to live another 160 months. So you've got plenty of time and life is practice. There's no destination. We're constantly practicing. So you can re-listen, write those down, make it a daily focus. And over a period, probably over as much as one day, you'll start to notice a difference. You'll start to notice that people are understanding what you're asking for or understanding what you're saying. And there's some clarity. And then you'll start to notice that the your brain changing and you'll be more definitive in your brain. And you think about Dr. Fisher's path, How do you give up architecture and surgery and psychiatry? How do you give up these huge end goals that most people have as their big lifelong goal and keep trying because you have that confidence, because you have those tools, because you've tried it before and dusted yourself off and started all over again. So I do have one more question for you, Robert. It's my favorite question. When you think back to your 20s, there's something that happened that seemed like a huge sacrifice at the time. And we just listed quite a few of them, you know, maybe changing schools. What was something that felt like a sacrifice that you have no regrets over and you would go back and do it all over again, even though it may have been painful at the time? The one that I list is after 18 or 19 or 20, 20 21 years of thinking that I was going to be in law was giving that up and going after what I wanted in in uh, in architecture, and to my surprise, that opened the door to something else. And when I was young, I'll I'll say this very quickly. Uh, I don't watch much TV, but I did watch a lot of medical shows, and they were fascinating to me. And suddenly, I was in medical school, and so I don't regret it. I miss some of the people, some of the activities, but um, I'm lucky about my career. It's like 
something it's like having been guided from step to step to step and they just happened i think that's partially the way you look at it and there is something to take out of this um there's the little clues uh there's the language in your head and catching it but the real thing to take out of this is the optimism the belief in yourself that you can make these big changes and you might be going down one path but if you're doing well in one path you can probably do well in another path. If you're listening to the clues and vetting the clues and listening to some people and not others and really taking all this seriously, you might find a better path. And Dr. Fisher, we really appreciate you making time to come on the Edge of Excellence today and share your wisdom with us. I think you've probably helped quite a few people find and ask for what they want. Well, it's my pleasure. And I thank you, Matt. You've stimulated my thinking and... Uh, We've spent some uh, quite a bit of time getting ready to talk, and uh, I send my my greetings to those people in your audience. I feel fortunate in being here and glad to be of help. Thank you, and shout out to Nancy Yates and Terry Yates for all they did to inspire me in my life. Have a great day and enjoy your path to excellence. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Edge of Excellence podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this exact episode with them. This show exists to showcase what is possible when young leaders are willing to step out of their comfort zone and choose to excel in their lives. To learn more about our internship for young and ambitious students, www.oneinternship.com podcast to see if it's something that makes sense for you. Once again, it is www.oneinternship.com slash podcast. Let this be a reminder for you to live on the edge of excellence in your business and life. See you next time.